Thanks for inviting me. It's been very good. You feel so much like our church. We are one church. We really are. And one day, we're going to all be together in the kingdom of heaven. How wonderful is that? Mm -hmm. We're separated at the moment by a bit of distance and cold. (laughs) But one day we'll be all together with the Lord. That's beautiful. I'm looking forward to that day. It's just going to be so wonderful. Now last time I was with you, back in December, I preached from the first miracle that Jesus did. The very first thing that Jesus did. I felt the Lord say that he wants me to go through the Gospel of John, which is the Gospel to the world at large. And just unpack the highlights, the main things. And this is what I've been doing in our church. And he wanted me to start with the first miracle, which is the wedding, the water turned into wine at the Cana wedding, which, if you remember, was all about what Jesus came to do. And Basically, what he came to do was to get a bride. And we are that bride. Amen? We will be joined to Jesus spiritually forever. We will be one with him. It has nothing to do with this flesh. It's our spirit and our soul will be joined to God forever. That's the reason he created us, is to be in eternal fellowship with him. How wonderful is that? So he demonstrates that at the wedding at Cana. Now this morning what I want to bring is the last miracle (laughs) that Jesus did. And the first miracle and the last miracle kind of pull the whole of Jesus' ministry together and shows us the whole purpose of him coming. So I've called this to fish for men because it's the catch of fish, the very last miracle that Jesus did. So let's turn to John chapter 21. Now we have to understand that Jesus didn't just randomly do miracles for some sort of entertainment value or some kind of trickery to gain a following. Everything Jesus did was to preach a message. Everything. There is nothing wasted, not a single word, not a single action. Everything he did is significant. It is perfect. It is complete. It is full in every way. There is nothing wasted. There is nothing that was done frivolously. There was nothing for the flesh It was all about bringing the message of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what his three or three and a half years of ministry was all about. So this morning we're going to have a look at this last miracle and see what this is all about. 
So Father, I just pray that by your Spirit you would be with us this morning as we come around your Word, that you would reveal truth to us, Lord, that you would reveal your will, give us an understanding of your Word. I pray that it would heal souls, that there would be healing power in your Word this morning to heal souls. For we have sinned against you, Lord. Heal our souls. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, let's just start with reading this passage from John chapter 21. From verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw in it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to, the, to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. <clears throat> okay, now the thing about miracles is that they are all pointing to something. They're telling us a story. <clears throat> if we have a look in Psalm 115, let's just quickly turn there. Psalm 115.
And here, what, what we read really is the condition of the world. From verse 1, Psalm 115, let's, we'll just read the first eight verses. It says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So here, the psalmist is, is saying, you know, that we have this great God, a God of truth and mercy, and a, a God of, that they want to give all glory to. And why should the Gentiles ask, you know, where is he? Where is their God? And here he says, he talks about the Gentiles' idols. And he says that they have all of these things, but they can do nothing. Now, this is the world that Jesus came into. Even in Judaism, they had basically turned to idolatry because they were not truly following Jesus in their hearts. They had turned the law into uh, a means to, to get gain, financial gain. And so everything they were doing was corrupted. And so here, what, what we're seeing is that Jesus is doing miracles that cut against that. So he would heal the blind. What's he saying when he heals the blind? I will make you see. You will be able to see truth. He heals the lame, the withered hand. You will be able to do things again. You will be made whole. You will be made complete. This is all part of Jesus' message. This is why he performed miracles. Miracles are not for show. They are not things that we can turn on. In fact, we are unable to do them. Only Jesus can do them. And they are to preach a message. So here, this is the, the world that Jesus comes into. He begins to destroy the kingdom of darkness all around him. That's what he was doing. Behold, for the kingdom of God is near Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. See, it is in me. It is I, Jesus. And then he begins to tear down the kingdom of darkness all around him, healing the sick, healing the lame, causing the, 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 the deaf to hear, the blind to see. John the Baptist was concerned about whether he was truly the Messiah. Sends disciples to say, Are you the one or should we wait for another? He says, go and tell him what you see. What did they see? They saw the sick being healed. They saw the poor getting the gospel message, you see. And so he knew that this was the Messiah, tearing down the kingdom of darkness. And that's what Jesus came to do. So all the miracles are for a reason. 
Now, this appearance on the beach is the seventh appearance out of ten. And it's the third with the disciples. Okay, so there's typology here in everything Jesus does. Seven is the number of salvation. Three is the number of completeness. And this miracle kind of winds up everything. It's the last miracle Jesus does. It's the only miracle after the resurrection. And so there's a completeness about it. Yes, I've come to get a bride, but you're going to do something while, while we wait for the church age. And everything about this story is a picture. Even Jesus came with parables, but he even played out things in reality that were pictures. And we're going to have a look at that, see what that picture was. So in the first three verses, uh, he tells them to go and to, to meet at Galilee. So after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. <laughs> they caught nothing. The Sea of Tiberias is also the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> There's seven of them there and they're fishing all night and they catch nothing. Have a look in uh, chapter 15 of John. Verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Without Jesus you can do nothing. Now, these disciples have spent a long night fishing and have caught nothing. <laughs> this long night is a type of the church age, the time of the Gentiles or the time of grace. You know, we are in a dispensation of grace. God is not judging the sin of the world. He really isn't. Their sin has consequences, so it's going to bring devastation what the world is doing, it always does. Whatever they do that is, that is against God's rule brings harm to our society. But that's a natural outworking of it. It's not God's wrath. He is not judging us for our sin. This is a time of grace. But there is coming a time when the door will be closed and his wrath will be poured out and vengeance will be the Lord's. He will come back and there will be judgment. <clears throat> so we are in that time of the long night right now. It's been roughly about 2,000 years now, but it is a long night. It is the dispensation of grace and we are waiting for the return of Jesus. I want to tell you that any doctrine that takes your focus away 
from looking for the appearance of Jesus is a doctrine of demons. It really is. Because the main motivation of the church is to be looking for Jesus. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We will not even see him. The church will not see him or know him. That's a fact, folks. We will not see him. We are looking for Jesus. He will come. Then the Antichrist and all these things will happen. It's all written in the Scriptures. We won't know who he is. We won't see the peace treaty. We won't see the tribulation period. We won't see any of that. Our focus is on Jesus. You know why? Because when we focus on the return of Jesus, what do we do? We make our lives right before him. We sanctify ourselves. We make ourselves holy. We deal with all the little things in our lives that are wrong and against God's way that bring offence to the kingdom of God. That's what we do when we're looking for the appearance of Jesus. So any doctrine that takes away from that is a doctrine of demons. There's no such thing as a pre-tribulation rapture, I mean a mid-tribulation rapture or a post. That's rubbish because the tribulation period is God's wrath being poured out on the world and we are not being separated unto God's wrath. We're going to be taken away from God's wrath. Amen? Yes, we'll have tribulation and trials and all those things. That's not from God. (laughs) That's from being here. I want to tell you something about the gospel. The gospel is an offence to the world. Just accept it and get over it. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't try and water down doctrines with it. There are people, I was asked a question one night in a prayer meeting saying, why do people do this um, theology evolution thing or theistic evolution? Oh, well, because they're, they're ashamed of the gospel. They're trying to appear smart to the intelligent, so-called intelligent world. No, the gospel is foolishness to them. Get over it, just accept it. It's foolishness. When somebody asks me what I believe, I tell them what I believe. If they laugh, that's their problem. You see? Just accept it and get over it. We are an offence to the world. That's a fact. Now you see, in verses 4 to 6, have a look here. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will have some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. What a great miracle. See, this is the miracle that Jesus did. This is the last miracle. And it required some obedience. When we, when we have obedience to Jesus, it brings the miraculous, a miracle. And the greatest miracle is salvation. Jesus said that you would be fishers of men. So this is what the whole purpose of this miracle is about. It's to demonstrate that the whole purpose of the church is to bring souls into the kingdom of God. There's no other purpose. It's not about entertainment. 
It's not about making money. It's not about big shots or, or any big, you know, empire building. It's about bringing souls into the kingdom of God. You see that? That's what it's all about. All that other stuff is just garbage. Jesus is only concerned about bringing souls into the kingdom of God. And the only way we can do that is with obedience. And obedience requires humility. There is no room for pride in the kingdom of God. None whatsoever. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, first five verses. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Pick me, pick me. (laughs) Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty serious, isn't it? You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I better listen to this. This is important. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You see? So this is all about humility. So with humility or without humility you cannot enter the, enter the kingdom of God. You must, you can't obey, you see. You can't obey. Pride is, is what destroys humanity. It's our greatest enemy. Really it is. Have a look at its origins. Let's turn to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 14. This is pride. We all have it. The scripture tells us to put on humility. We all have pride and we have to learn to deal with it and overcome it and obey Christ. It takes humility to obey Christ. Isaiah chapter 14 from verse 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, see it's inside, you have said in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. You see, that's pride. Lucifer wanted to be greater than the Most High God. Be careful of people who are preaching that you can do all the things that God does. You can be a little God. That's a lie. That's a lie. You can't be God. (laughs) You just can't be. There's only one God and he's the creator. We're the created. We aren't the creator. We're not the potters. We're We're the pots. You see? We're shaped and formed as he wills and he will do with what with us, whatever he chooses to do. you just got to accept it. It's as simple as that. We don't own ourselves. We have no rights over ourselves. We belong to Jesus. Amen? You see? But see, Satan lifted himself up in pride. That's why he was cast out. And this is the thing that keeps us away from the kingdom of God, is pride. In Hebrews, Paul talks about, I believe Paul's the writer of Hebrews, he says, let us let go of the sin that so easily entangles. What is it? Pride. That's the sin that so easily entangles. Nothing else. It's our worst enemy. With pride we cannot be obedient. Now see, these guys are expert fishermen. You would say, wouldn't you? They ran business catching fish and they were out all night, couldn't catch a single fish. And then they look over and there on the the shore is this bloke there and he calls out to them, you caught anything? No, put your net on the other side. Are you serious? (laughs) You want me to put my net on the other side? This is crazy stuff. They didn't argue, did they? They just did it. They just obeyed. In humility, they obeyed. And then there was a miracle, a miracle catch, you see. If we just find what Jesus wants us to do and we obey that, then we will see his mighty hand at work for us. Amen. In whatever you're doing, whatever he asks you to do, just be obedient in humility to him. Don't think that you know something more than he does. You can't know anything more than him. He might tell you to do the simplest thing and you might think, that's just crazy. That's not going to work. But you just go and do it and he will bless you. His hand will work with you. You see, in Acts, in chapter 2, it says that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. They didn't do it. There is nothing we can do to bring salvation of souls. Absolutely nothing. Because salvation is a miracle and we can't do miracles. Jesus asks us to preach the gospel message. That's it. The miracle is from God. He's the one that changes hearts. You see, before I got saved, a friend of mine, he needed to go and get some fuel. He was kind of setting me up a bit. <clears throat> and uh, so we got on the bike and we rode down to this place called the Mustard Seed and there was these Christians running it and this girl comes out and she starts telling me about Jesus. <laughs> it was quite amazing, really. I'm thinking, 
this girl's crazy. She's telling me about a dead bloke 2,000 years ago, like he's still walking around now. And he's like grinning in the background, ha, 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 look at John, you know, getting the gospel sort of thing. And she said to me that he loved me and he died on a cross for my sins. And you know, when I got on the bike and we're riding off, I remember thinking, yeah, I can believe that somebody could rise from the dead, but loving me, that's just stupid. I couldn't believe that. But you know what? That was the first time that that word pierced my heart and began to change me inside. I began to wonder, is there really a God? Is this Jesus really alive today? You see? So the word had a powerful effect in my life. That girl, she couldn't do any miracles. She just preached the gospel. And it had an effect because the Spirit of God was working. How good was that? It was just so wonderful to get saved. I loved getting saved. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah, it was good, eh? You look back and you go, wow, I am so blessed. You're, you're just in such a great place to be with Jesus. I could still be lost in the world. What a wonderful salvation. <coughs> okay, so this great miraculous catch of fish is because of their obedience. Now let's have a look at Luke chapter 5. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 5 and from verse 1. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitude from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on 
you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So on this occasion, Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And he realises that he's the Messiah. Only the Messiah could do such things. And he falls down before him and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a man full of sin. He's in the presence of God. He knows the presence of God. And it exposes to him his own sinfulness, his sin nature. And he says, I am not worthy to be near you. Depart from me, I am a man full of sin." And see, when he was listening to the teachings of Jesus, his heart would have been stirred and turning towards the kingdom of God. But he had not seen fully who Jesus was yet. And so when Jesus says to him, put the nets down, what does he do? He questions it. You see? Oh, Lord, we've toiled all night. But nevertheless, because you say so, we'll do it. Well, that's obedience, but that's not like the next obedience, is it? You see the difference? There's a gradual moving towards Jesus. I believe I experience that in my prayer life all the time. I want what I want. (laughs) And then I move, no, no, (laughs) this is what you should want, you see? And so our obedience is a progression. It's changing all the time. Because we're dealing with our flesh. We're dealing with our sin nature. And so here, Peter, at first, is using a little bit of his wisdom. Well, I'm an expert fisherman. I know how this works. We've toiled all night. There's no fish here. But okay, because you say so, out of respect for you, you're a great teacher, we'll put down the nets and he sees a miracle, realises he's in the presence of God, the Messiah, falls down before him on his knees and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a man full of sin. What a wonderful experience. Later on you can read in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus challenges them and says, Who do men say that I am? Oh, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say a teacher. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly steps forward and he says, you are the Messiah, the living God. How amazing is that? And what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. See, something's happening in Peter's heart. This is the Messiah, this Jesus, you see. And he says, upon this rock, what rock? The rock is a revelation of who Jesus is. I will build my church. The true church in the world today is all of those who have a revelation of who Jesus is. Amen? That's it. Once you get a revelation of Jesus, there's no turning back. Where do you go after that? 
oh, I think I'll go and try Buddha. How stupid would that be? Or Islam, oh, I might go over here and try this. No, when you've tasted of Christ, there is nothing else. When you know who he is, there is nothing else. There's no turning back. You have the Messiah. You have Christ Jesus, the creator in your life. You can't get rid of him. He's in you. Amen? When I first got saved, this is a true experience. When I got saved, it was with a bunch of guys in this A-framed house up in the mountains of in, down near south of Mwollombar. The next day, I knew I was different. And I tell you what, it scared me. I got up that morning and I thought, you idiot, what have you done? Now you've got this spirit called Jesus in you. How are you going to get rid of that? Seriously, that's what I was thinking. I didn't know who Jesus was. I had no religious background, no understanding of the Bible. That night before, I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour and I knew I was different. I was changed instantly. The next morning I was in a panic. What am I going to do? How am I going to get this spirit out of me now? You see, I knew about demons, I can tell you, because of the things that I was involved in. And this Christian comes down the, the mountain and he sees me at this house I was staying in. And he says, hey, John. And you know what the first thing he was, said was? He says, that Jesus is a good God. He's going to look after you. You don't have to worry about him. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Oh, okay. He's a good God. All right. And I went inside and this other bloke had a Bible. I start reading that, you see. So I started at Genesis. I thought you just start at the beginning of the book. And some Christian says, no, no, you've got to start reading John. Well, where's that? Oh, it's at the end of the book. And I'm thinking, this guy, you know, he's not quite right. He's telling me to start at the end of the book. <laughs> I knew nothing about the scriptures, absolutely nothing. Anyway, what a wonderful experience getting saved. So, you see, this whole miracle of the catch of fish is challenging them to be obedient in humility. That's what this was all about. Okay, so now let's have a look at um, Matthew chapter 13. I want to go there and show you something. Matthew 13. We're going to look at some really good scriptures. Well, all scripture is really good, really. It's just that some of it I don't understand yet. <laughs> you read something, you go, oh, I've got no understanding of that. But it's all good. I just haven't arrived there yet. Okay, now, in Matthew chapter 13 we have the parable of the net. See, we've got to understand what this miracle was all about. What is Jesus trying to say to the disciples when he visits them for the third time after the resurrection? What's he trying to say? What's the message he's trying to get across? Now, he's already preached some of it. He's already demonstrated some of it. Now he's bringing it all together in this last miracle and demonstrating something to them. 
So let's have a look in uh, Matthew 13 and verse 47. Let's have a look there. And this is the parable of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. These are all important words, folks. There's nothing wasted in in the scripture. Which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and, and gathered the good into vessels but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so Jesus brings this parable which is about the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God on earth, he's talking about, is like a fishing net or a drag net dragged through the waters. <coughs> the net is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth or in the world. It's the church. This is the only place where the kingdom of God is. You realise that? It's in you. The kingdom of God lives in you. You are the church, the body of believers. People get a little confused and they think it's the building or some sort of organisation or some sort of structure. No, it's where God lives. That's where the kingdom of God is. It's where God lives. Where does he live? He lives in you. The kingdom of God is in you, you see. And so here he's talking about the kingdom of God being like a net. What does that mean? That means you're being dragged through the world. You see? The waters is always the multitude of peoples. So the net is the church or the kingdom of God on earth. The sea is a multitude of nations. It's in the world. Whenever you're reading the the prophets and it talks about you know great bodies of water or the sea that's a multitude of nations and the net is being dragged through that the shore that they bring the net up onto is the end of the age how wonderful is that this is all coming to an end all this is coming to an end there's we're going to reach the shore The shore is the end of the age. The good are the just and righteous and the bad are the wicked. Where are these bad? In the church. We're not talking about the world. Why would we talk about the world? Why would the scripture talk about the world? We have nothing to do with the world. They're outside. You see? All the letters of the New Testament... They're the outsiders. Paul doesn't address them at all. They're just outside. They're the people with no hope. They're outside. He's talking about people in the kingdom of God, in the church, you see? And that's what's happening here. The kingdom of God is like a net, you see? Not talking about the world. 
the water is the world and the kingdom of God is being dragged through the world. And the angels will do the separating at the end of the age. We don't have to worry about that bit. God will sort it all out. In Matthew chapter 13, let's have a look at verse 24. This is the parable of the tares and the wheat. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them, in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, and then in verse, from verse 36 to 43 he explains this parable. He gives us, he tells us what he's talking about. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So without the multitudes there, he's just got the disciples with him, he begins to explain what this parable means. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. There we go, that's clear, isn't it? That's Jesus the Son of Man. He always referred to himself as the Son of Man because that is the miracle, that he became a man. Not that he's God. He is God, but that's not the miracle. The miracle is God became a man. So he refers to himself as the Son of Man. So he sows the good seed in the field. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. That's the believers. That's the righteous. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. They're the sons of the devil. So they're in the kingdom of God as well. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom. That's the church on earth. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. 
That's pretty interesting, isn't it? All things that offend God. And those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into a furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the man is Jesus, the son of man who is Jesus. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom and the field is the world. The enemy is the devil or the wicked one. The tares are the sons of the devil. These are sown among the wheat which is in the world. So the church is in the world. You see? And the tares are sown among the believers, the wheat. They're with you. (laughs) And we turn to each other. (laughs) I might be sitting next to one. (laughs) Don't get paranoid. (laughs) Okay, out of his kingdom, all things that offend. That's what he's going to do. You see, you look at the Christendom worldwide. What sort of nonsense is out there? Seriously. Look at Catholicism. We were talking about this the other night. Two billion people apparently follow this religion. It is pagan from beginning to end. They don't have a single correct doctrine. Not one. Not one. The village idiot could do better than that. Just read the Bible. Surely you could get something right. No, not Catholicism. Nothing. Zero. Zero. Not one correct doctrine. That's amazing. That can't be by accident. That's got to be on purpose. Like I said, the village idiot could do better than that. So this is an offence to God. This whole thing is an offence to God. It's going to be torn out and thrown in the fire. That's what's going to happen. Amen? So the tares are amongst the wheat. But God will sort it out. We don't have to worry about that. Let's have a look in 2 Corinthians. These tears, they look like believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's have a look there. From verse 13. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You see, the Corinthian church had these false apostles coming in and they were greedy for gain. They were even punching some of them in the face to give over their tithe. 
It's all in there. These people were wicked people and they are the tares. These were the leaders, of course, but there are tares, the sons of the devil in there and the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. So it's, what I'm, the point I'm making with this Corinthian reference is that, that they appear to be like the believers. They appear to be righteous. They appear to love God, but they don't. They are workers of iniquity. Paul says in Philippians, we'll just quickly turn there, Philippians chapter 3. find Philippians, I've lost it, must have fell out, (laughs) here we go, Philippians chapter 3, from verse 1, it says, finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe, he says, beware of dogs, what are the dogs? In scripture, there is the dog. You can see that in Psalm 22. He's the devil. He's referred to as the dog. Then there's the dogs. They're the religious leaders greedy for gain. You'll have to search this yourself. And then there are the little dogs. Jesus refers to them. They are the followers of the dogs. Interesting, isn't it? Strong language. This is Paul writing in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. You see? Beware of the mutilation, which is the circumcision group. Or you you can also refer that to anyone who's trying to bring you under law. It's the same thing. He's trying to bring them. These people were trying to preach the law again and you had to obey all these laws in order to achieve your salvation. No, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, which is the circumcision group. And then he goes on, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, you see, we, the believers, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You see, to be religious is to have confidence in the flesh. Oh, I have achieved this. I go to church every Sunday. I I give my offering. I, I do this. I do that. I don't do this. I don't do that. That's confidence in the flesh. Forget it. It won't work. It's not going to get you into heaven. You're going to burn in hell with that. What you have to do is receive Jesus and make him Lord and master of your life. Amen? That's the only hope we have. 
And at the very end, he will separate out the tares. Okay, let's go back to John 21. How are we going for time? Is it usually you're finished by now, don't you? What will I do? Keep going? Okay. <coughs> All right. Let's have a look back in John 21, verse 15. Okay. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So here what's happening is, of course, is this is all about Peter's denial of Jesus. You know, in the denial... He said that, you know, he would follow him even to the death. We'll just quickly look at it. We've got to go and do it. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then in Luke 22, let's have a look there. So all the disciples said they would even die with Jesus. Luke 22, let's have a look. And verse 54. 
says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him, but he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that moment? Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. So here he is, he's denied Jesus three times. He's in the flesh, you see. The flesh holds us back. His spirit wanted to be with Jesus. He knew he was the Messiah. He wanted to be right there with him. They all wanted to. They all understood the gospel that they were going to die for their belief in Jesus. But the flesh was holding him back with fear. And then as he denies him, as he's denying him the third time, he turns and Jesus is being led out and the eyes meet across that courtyard. The conviction would have been enormous. And he realises what he's done. I've denied my Lord. And he goes out and weeps bitterly over it. Now on one occasion when Jesus appears to them after the resurrection, he says, go and tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And Peter. Make special mention of him. And Peter. How wonderful is that? See, on the beach here, the picture is, they're out on the water, they're in the world, you see. Peter's taken off his outer garment. It's like the robe of righteousness. He's put it aside for a bit. I'm just going to go and do the fleshly thing, do my own stuff and go fishing. And the others join him. This is the picture that Jesus is painting when he visits his disciples the third time after the resurrection. And on the shore at the end of the age is Jesus standing there waiting They don't recognise him at first. They've been sidetracked a little bit, you see, with the flesh and fishing and doing the things of this life. And then all of a sudden, John, the one who loved him the most, the one that Jesus loved, the one that leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, who will betray you, Lord? That one says to Peter, it's the Lord. He puts on his outer garment and he plunges into the ocean and starts heading for that shore where Jesus is. That's the picture. 
He's at the end of the age. Folks, we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for the appearing of Christ. It can't be too far away, I'm sure. The world's getting darker and more evil. He can't be too far away now. It's been nearly 2,000 years. That's what we're looking for. And then when they've had breakfast and they're on the beach, all walking along the beach, Jesus nails Peter about his commitment. And he says to Peter in verse 15, he says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? You see, the word he uses is agape. It's a sacrificial love. In other words, will you die for me more than these other disciples? Are you going to exalt yourself above all your brothers? Do you think you're somebody? See, you failed. And Peter says, Lord, I affiliate you. He can't come up to that now. He's already shown that he failed. You see that? There are different words used here in this conversation. Agape means a sacrificial love, that you will die for the thing you love. Affiliate is an affectionate love. Yes, I love you, he says. Then Jesus says, do you agape me? You know that I affiliate you, Peter says. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. The second time he says, do you agape me? And Peter says, you know that I affiliate you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. You see? So Jesus is challenging him. Can you come up to this? Well, no. All right, but I, I still have called you. I still want you to do this work. You will get there. Then Jesus, do you affiliate me? Jesus says this word the third time. Now this grieves Peter. It cuts him because now he's challenging him on what he thinks he can lift up to. You see what I'm saying? And Peter is grieved and Peter says, I affiliate you. And he says, feed my sheep. Peter had... Peter was then going to be led by the Holy Spirit to his death. You see? That's what that conversation is all about. And you see, we have to live a sacrificial life for Jesus. That's what this is all about. Will you die for me? Will you put aside pride? Will you put aside your religious thinking or the things that you love of this world for Jesus. It takes humility to do that, you see. So Jesus says, he tells them afterwards to go and make disciples, not to go and get converts. That's easy business and it's rubbish. He doesn't say go and make converts. He says go and make disciples. That's hard work, folks. Have a look in Jeremiah. We have one last passage here. 
Jeremiah chapter 3. You see, Jesus is telling Peter to feed the sheep. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. This is the Lord speaking. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. Isn't that wonderful? You see, we are the bride. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. What a wonderful promise. See, that's what Jesus was doing in Peter. He was creating a shepherd who would feed the flock with knowledge and understanding. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? And he says, come unto me. That's what Jesus wants. He says, for I am married to you. You are my wife. I'm going to be one with you in spirit. And I will give you good shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Amen? God bless you all. Thank you, Lord.